In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I think they should go ahead. You know, people going there will be obviously be able to make that personal decision, that risk assessment if they get COVID. Da 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 da. Like if they're able to, I don't know. You know, no one's going there because they want to get COVID. They want to support the industry. They want to be able to get back. And I think it's really frustrating for the performers and also the service people who work in that industry that, like, they're seeing people, say, go to the All-Ireland final while they can't hold, like, a concert for a thousand people. It is frustrating. For instance, if there was a concert in the three arena tonight, back like normal times, would you still go? Uh, yeah, I would. Um, I'm, like, partially vaccinated now, but I would feel happy and safe to attend. Most of us are fully vaccinated now and life really has to go on. Um, there's not much more that the public can do and I think, what is it, like over 80% of Irish yeah. adults are vaccinated now. So I think if you're fully vaccinated, it's only fair that things pick up again. Yeah, like if people are like vaccinated and they have like their things, like you know what they have when they're going into like pubs and stuff, they have to show like their vaccination card, just the same as that, like people who aren't like vaccinated, fully vaccinated can't go in, it's just simple like that, do you know what I mean? I think something like that should go ahead. But yeah, I think it's been a long time without them, so I think they should definitely be coming back soon. When was the last time you were at a concert yourself? I think about two years ago. And yeah. do you notice that void in yeah, your life? I do, yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like most of us are vaccinated now. And we, we're more vaccinated than England as well, aren't we? So I think we should be allowed. As long as everyone's vaccinated, yeah. If there was a concert on in the three arena tonight, just like normal times, would you go? Would you feel safe? Maybe not the three arena, but like somewhere smaller even might be better. Or somewhere outdoors. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, at one stage or another, we've all been through the ringer trying to find our perfect match. But uh, this story takes it to a whole new level. Did you have a kind of a, a checklist for what you were looking for in, in these people on these dates? Um, I mean, I did. I, so when I came up with a one date every week for a year, I um, thought, OK, what do I want in a partner? And I made another list and I thought, OK, smart, tall and fun. That was my first Is that it? three things that I put on my list. Just three things? Like, yes. Which, you know, I, then I went to my therapist, who's a character, good, strong character in the book. He gives me lots of advice as I go through the journey. But she kind of laughed and said, I wonder how long it's going to take before you um, rethink that list. And yeah, as I kind of started meeting people, I realized there was one date I went on with. There was a, a guy who said, I, I usually only date blondes and I don't date women over 35. And I thought that was so superficial and I felt kind of like, you know, that I'd be discarded based on something I can't control, you know, my age or my hair color. Yeah. And then I thought, hang on, me discarding or thinking about tall or height is exactly the same thing. Right. So I didn't want to be that person. But then also, you know, I met someone who was smart and fun, um, but wasn't very nice to me and realized that you know, if they care, someone who cares about me and is nice, like that is really the most important thing. Right. And, you know, and then also I like, think that reliability and you know, there's lots of other things that make someone right. good. Long-term partner material, yeah. the ability to self-reflect, you know, right. those kind of things. As opposed, I have, I have to, a suspicion you know. your mother would have told you all that before you drew up the list. <laughs> oh, my mother is an interesting character in the book. Actually, <laughs> 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 you'll get to meet her. <laughs> um, um, no, she wasn't great on that kind of thing. 
Right. Okay, but but you you set out with this and, you know, it does become absolutely amazing because there are dates with 138 men, which is unique. Well, for me, well, it's unique in terms of how you applied yourself to it. Um, And it gave you all these different experiences. Like, for instance, you you got to meet people and you obviously travel internationally. You got to meet people in Sydney and New York and San Francisco. Did, Did you see differences between those, how they date? Uh, definitely. I mean, there's definitely cities tend to attract a particular type. It's not everybody is like that. It's just that you'll find a lot of people in Sydney who work in finance and, you know, sometimes have particular kind of issues around relationships or are looking for something that's different to what I'm looking for. Um, But I mean, I did find that in general, men in Australia and New Zealand kind of were more interested in, they went on a date looking for a relationship, whereas New York was much more, you know, they would go, like, this Wednesday night, they were going to a whiskey tasting event and they'll organise a date to come with them kind of thing. And it was that was that was the extent of the relationship. There was no expectation of a, you know, is this something, are we going to potentially be a match where we could get married one day and have children? Like, it just was not that kind of thing. It was more of a sport or a kind of like an, yeah. Right. <laughs> an, an activity that you do as opposed to, on yeah. your date for the night, not um, looking for a long-term emotional relationship. Right. I have a vision of the Hunger Games going through my mind for some reason there. Um, I, the Sid, men in Sydney more into finance. I imagine a lot of our listeners will, will consider moving uh, to Sydney on the basis of that information. Also, um, you're dating multiple men at the same time. Did you really have a spreadsheet to try and keep on top of this? Oh, so, I mean, I had this whole strategy that I developed through the process so I mean and it's not like I wouldn't say don't think you know this is formula and then you find love it's not it's not formulaic but there's a definitely a structure that I use to kind of get myself out there and to to learn from so you know in business I knew that you know I built a sales funnel for my company and I wanted to get lots of potential customers at the top of the sales funnel and then filter them really well and then invest my time in the potential customers that were most likely to convert and so I thought about dating in a similar way. I was like, okay, I've got 52 shots of this across a year. I want to invest my time going out with the guys that are the most, you know, best chances to be a match for me. And so I realized things like I needed to have a lot of potential candidates at the top. So I started just with eHarmony and then I added, you know, Tinder and um, all the other dating sites that are out in Australia as well as I signed up for classes and got introductions. And then I also worked out, you know, after going on a couple of bad dates that I could learn a lot about someone if I have a phone call with them. So I always, you know, do phone calls on a Sunday afternoon with kind of four or five different people I'd spoken to online during the week and a real phone call on Sunday. And then if that felt good and um, like, you know, there's a potential here, we'll go on a date during the week. But that was like kind of a good way of starting to filter. Right. So in um, your spreadsheet then, you have to keep track of what each person is into. Yes, the, who that they, was the trick. Well, it's because God. I was doing so many of these calls, I would forget their stories. So, you know, the, um, I would say, oh, I'll tell you, you know, how's your sister in Adelaide? And then they would look at me kind of funny. And be like, oh, that was the other, <laughs> the other <laughs> phone call. So that was the spreadsheet. It wasn't to check off anything or anything yeah. like that. It was really just to kind of manage the... Not make a, a really bad slip. Really, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, but um, but I mean, I've got to say that the journey was like it was partly finding the right person, but it was a lot about becoming the right person, and it was a lot of personal growth and you know, learning about myself, um, 
right. and you know, transforming some key things about myself that, right. that kind of made me the kind of person that could, could form it. Author and entrepreneur Rebecca Campbell from Moncrief. Now, this book has got rave reviews from people that you'd be impressed with. You know, my old friend Ryan Tuberty, a comedy of manners and a lack of manners, good fun and cheeky as hell. Graham Norton gives it a rave review. Ian Rankin loved the book. Um, so has this helped you get over your own trauma from yeah. your social media misadventures? <laughs> um, it has. I mean, I found it quite cathartic to write. And I, I, I will admit that, you know, some of the drafts that I gave my editor, you know, would come, he would say to me, you've got to pull it back a bit. You know, like you're this, like you've got too many monologues or you're, you just sound like you're angry in it. And as I said at the start, I wanted it to be funny. You know, I wanted people to laugh. So you can't make it too much about yourself. But I did find a place to kind of get catharsis. Um, in it and to feel that I had got my experience out in this book. And I think it's, you know, it's it's not unreasonable for a writer to take uh, a negative experience in their life and use it in their fiction and try to understand it through their fiction. I, I've had a lot of things that I've, you know, say stuff that's happened to me in my life that I've used novels to understand for myself. But once it's done, and in this book, The Echo Chamber, it's done that I feel like I can now move on with my life um, onto the next book. Mm-hmm. But I think Jessica and The Echo Chamber together make kind of an interesting uh, duology, if that's a, if that's a real word. Um, another quote. I blame Steve Jobs and that Zuckerberg fellow, all those clever little psychopaths. They're the Oppenheimers of the 21st century, a reference to Op- Robert Oppenheimer and, and the atomic bomb. Well, I think a lot of the, um, you know, the Silicon Valley people who invented these platforms, they don't take enough responsibility for what happens on them. And, you know, we have seen, you know, on a more serious note, we've seen a lot of people who've lost their lives because of social media, who've taken their lives. People in the public eye, often teenagers. I see it with the teenage children of my friends, how... Um, obsessed they are with, say, Instagram and the right kids in the class liking their tweets and their posts and their so on. And it can lead to, it can lead at its worst to death. And I think that the social media platforms and the people who run them need to take more responsibility for that, need to stop the kind of fake accounts, um, you know, where it could be anybody using a fake name, no picture. I think, you know, having to take responsibility for what you say online is important. You know, they, they sometimes say that don't tweet something that you're not willing to defend in a court of law. Um, when people read this book, um, they will just, as I say, be laughing uh, out loud. It's a, it's a romp all the way through. And uh, obviously there's a, a, a culmination, shall we say. We we'll, won't spoil it for anybody. I could read loads of quotes which will make people laugh, but then they wouldn't get maybe to laugh as deeply when they read them for themselves in the book. Uh, but at the end of reading the book, obviously you, you do get, if you like, your, your parable about social media, uh, uh, you know, no matter whether you're on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or any of those or Twitter, you will, I think, get the message loud and clear from John Boyne. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I've, I think I've made my point, <laughs> shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it does end at a place where you realise it's, it's, it's better not to engage too much on these things. And I've given up a long time ago on sort of engaging with crazy. You know, I, I, the only, I only have one... Uh, well, I have Twitter and I tend to use it just to talk about books that I like and not to engage in anything that would be, 
you know, potentially ruinous where you're going to wake up and you're going to just be worried about what somebody has said to you. You know, they can't really give out to you for, you know, talking about the new Anne Tyler novel or something. But, you know, if you talk about politics or you talk about social matters, um, no matter what position you take, somebody on the opposite side is going to start screaming at you. And, you know, it can be it can be wearying. You know, I'm sure you feel it yourself. You know, it can be wearying when you see your your name trending or your show trending or your book trending and you think it's going to be it's just going to be somebody saying something nasty. Novelist John Boyne from The Pat Kenny Show. On Friday, Lunchtime Live spoke to two Afghan women now living in Ireland. Here's Sharifa and Navilla. All people in Afghanistan, they're all your your blood, you know, you you can feel the, their suffer. I love them. Uh, it's somewhere I lived uh, about seven, eight years of my life, and I know loads of people there. I know how good they are. And today, what happened or what's happening in the past few months or few days, it's it's very upsetting. Those people, they all they're all like me. They want they want freedom. They want peace. They don't they don't want war anymore. Um, Sharifa, stay with us here on, on Lunchtime Live because I just want to bring in um, Navila as well who, who's also living here in Ireland um, Navila, how, how long were you living in Afghanistan? Uh, 29 years old years. And when did you, did you move to Ireland? Yeah, 2019 how, how, are you, how have you been feeling for the last couple of days? Uh, this uh, couple of days that as I see from the social media and as I hear from my family, uh, I really heard my breakings. You know, it's all of my family, the, the only ones from my family, I am here. All the other, my family, all of them is in Afghanistan. They are living in there. Uh, I can't see, I can't see anything about my feeling because it is, a, it is horrible situations at the moment in Afghanistan. Especially last last night in Herat, I am from Herat of Herat, and it was horrible situations. Even it is not I can't say in the world, you know, how I am feeling. You've lived in Afghanistan, obviously, in um, or to more recent times. You mentioned to twenty nineteen. Um, obviously, then a very different experience to what Sharifa has described in terms of. Well, this was a different situation there, a different regime, Navila. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was for 29 years in Afghanistan. So most of the, my uh, life of my life was I was in Afghanistan. I worked with the girl in Afghanistan, uh, and that time it was so horrible situation. It's not just for the girls, for all the people in Afghanistan because they haven't uh, have a, a right. You know, peace is the only the smallest things that everyone, all the around of Afghanistan, the world wants, but unfortunately, people of Afghanistan haven't it. And they are always scared from the Taliban, from the different community. And it was horrible. Sharifa, what you've described to us in in the past couple of minutes, um, and when you hear the the reports of you know more Afghan cities and towns been been claimed by the Taliban, what's your concern? Like, how will things change for women now by comparison to what you've as, described? As Nabila said, uh, life will change for women, but but life will change for everyone. 
it's it's affecting everyone. Taliban, uh, from my experience, because I was living there when Taliban came to Herat, when Taliban came to to Kabul, there are a group of people who is against education, who is against everything in life, like what whatever can uh, cause development, whatever can cause happiness, whatever can cause a generation to to look forward for future, to bring more new things. They are against everything. I was in Afghanistan and we were not able to watch TV. We were not able to listen to music. I was a teacher and I wasn't able to work. I wasn't able, uh, allowed to leave the house. It, now, it, this is just about women, but it was affecting men also. They were forcing people for everything, for wearing what kind of clothes they should wear, what style of hair they should have what kind of education they should choose, like where they should go, where they shouldn't go, how many times they should pray, how they should pray. They are they are involved in everything. Some frightening vistas there from Sharifa Navilla from Lunchtime Live. OK, let's get the take now of Dominic Nichols, uh, Defence and Security Correspondent for The Telegraph, who also served with the British Army uh, with operational, in operational deployments in uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Dominic, just your assessment of what the situation is at the moment there. Uh, morning, guys. Thanks morning. for uh, thanks for asking me on. Um, so it seems to have settled down. Yesterday was an absolutely chaotic day, as we saw those scenes from the, uh, from the airport. And flights had to be uh, had to be briefly briefly halted. Those images of people sort of crowding the C seventeen, the huge uh, strategic airlift transport planes as they were coming out, it just just couldn't carry on like that. So they closed uh, closed operations for a little while. The um, uh, the Brits and the Americans have, uh, have flown in more people, so there's going to be about six thousand U.S. forces there now, and about nine hundred nine hundred Brits to try and. Uh, Bring more order to the to the airport. That's that's happened, and and I'm told the flights have resumed. But it's still a, a very fluid and chaotic situation. The only the only embassies that are still operating in Kabul are um, Russia, China, and Pakistan. And Brits and others have moved their what's left of their embassy operations to the airport, and they're only now rapidly filling out um, uh, necessary paperwork to get to, to get people on the planes to to get them away and process those those sort of emergency visa applications outside outside of the country. But the priority is just to sort of make that do some sort of basic security checks and get people on the planes and out. Okay, a fluid and, and chaotic, absolutely. But are we effectively looking at a fait accompli? Listening to what Joe Biden had to say last night, defending his decision to withdraw uh, the troops uh, we are are we looking at the, the Taliban in control of Afghanistan long term in your view Dominic yes yeah absolutely no I mean that's happened it's over forget forget trying to uh, all these these great statements coming out of the US State Department and um, we've made a few over here as well about well we expect the Taliban to work with the international community and we'll hold them to value I mean it's rubbish it's rubbish the Taliban are, are in power and as much as um, as much as we want to hope that they're different this time and that there's going to be rule of law and respect for women and girls, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's up in the air. We can't, we can't decide. We can't know at the moment. The, um, the senior Taliban leaders, they were taken by surprise just as much as everyone else at the, about the, the, the speed of the advance. So the people that we're seeing in the major cities, including Kabul, are lower level Taliban commanders. So, so we can't take any idea from what we're seeing on the ground yet about and, and extrapolate that into the long term. I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to because there seems to be order, although there are reports of Taliban going door to door looking for former members of the, of the security forces that worked with them 
the work with international allies. But I'd I'd love to I'd love to say yeah, look, Tolo News, the uh, Afghan news channel, is is being anchored by a woman. So that must mean that they're going to respect. Women. I can't say that because okay. we just don't know. It's too early days. I mean, we we can hope, but but we do, we just don't know. The Taliban are in charge now. We had our chance and and it didn't work. And we've now just got to see what happens. We're bystanders now. A stark assessment there from Dominic Nichols from News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. What else are you going to do? I mean, you can't take knives off people. They'll get kitchen knives or steak knives. It's like all these cultural problems and young fellas with nothing to do and too many hormones and no, no choices in life. And it's just frustration, really, isn't it? And then life has become cheap. Have you seen knives, or is it, is it common? Or? Yeah, yeah, I've seen knives, yeah. I've seen lots of people have them, man. The culture's going to get a lot worse as well. You're going to hoard loads of young people, and you're going to give them nothing to do, man. They're going to come out in groups, man, you know what I mean? They're going to gather gangs. They're going to consider them gangs family, because that's all you have. They have nothing else. What do you expect to, what do you expect is going to happen? It's going to get a lot worse, man. You're locking people down like this, man, and expecting you to let them all out, expect them all to come out and be, be obedient, man. Come on, man. You know I mean? me, me, myself, man. I, I used to be one of them when I was younger. It wasn't as bad, you know what I mean? But like, I, I, I had to do it for my survival. But this day and age, man, people just do it for the fun, man. People swing blades just for fun. And, and, and did you carry a knife for protection? No, I didn't, but I've had knives pulled on me, yeah. And have they injured you? Or? No, no, no. I wouldn't give them a chance there. Let's say prison as well. There's a mentality in prison that you have to go around and carry shaves for protection. Now that I have done. But when you get outside, there's not enough uh, rehabilitation to get out onto the streets, to stop people with this mentality. In prison, like it's made out of a homemade toothbrush? Mm. As, as, as much as a genius mind can make it, it can, it can be done. 999 was seized. I don't know, I think there should be more uh, longer sentence. Do you know what I mean? 12 years at the least. Mm. After there's so many people, do you know what I mean? Young people getting into knife crime. I don't know what will you do, go around the schools, teach them from an early age. And, and there's a call for a mandatory course for people that are caught with knives to yeah. do. But what do you think of that? Would that work? I don't know. I think when they bring out a knife, they're intending to use it. That's my opinion. It's got to be more controlled. They have to be more strict. Otherwise, I mean, you can see kids these days with 10 years old carrying knives. And uh, what are they going to use it for? Not for butter. Like I said, main thing, more cops on the, on the streets. And the, the cops need to do their jobs. And just you saying, ten-year-old children. Have you seen knives being carried on? Uh, not in Dublin. No, we're from Cork, but in Cork, yeah, I've seen it, seen it a few times. I had actually had one daughter that was assaulted by a group of youngsters with knives and baseball bats. Like so, knife crime has come to your doors. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, but uh, well, as I said, I don't know. Like I said, in my daughter's case, I went to the guard station. I pointed them out who they were, and and uh, I, that's what I told to them. Look. From now on, I'm going to do justice by my own hands. But your daughter, how does she feel now going out at night? She's, or? Afraid. she's, she's afraid. like this. She's uh, least she's gone out in the night time. But it's very hard to her, you know, keep going. She has a lot of problems about that. Josh Crosby reporting. On Sunday, Taking Stock explores the future of drone technology. Here's Gavin McLaughlin and Ian Kiley from Drone Consultants Ireland. Some parts of the public might not like this. I mean, you mentioned the concept of the flying kitchen tables. <laughs> Do you think there could be a backlash against some of this? I think that there will be. There's, there's always people that are dissatisfied about developments and moving forwards. Um, 
there were a lot of people a few years ago really distrustful and disdainful of drones and yet you know we've moved on from that and a lot of people are there was the, there was these things this is like stuff about somebody flying the drone it was at Heathrow Airport or something and it caused huge disruption yeah well I know that there for, I know for a fact there was a drone in Dublin airport uh, I don't necessarily personally believe the one in Heathrow there was lots of different rumours going around I never saw any evidence uh, I did meet the guys that were in charge of that whole tobacco um, I don't this believe this is within one. Heathrow is it Within the Heathrow, we never saw any evidence and there was a lot of people jumping to conclusions. Uh, there could have been anything in the sky. I know that at one stage the army thought they'd spotted uh, a drone and it was actually the police helicopter. Um, and then they called that poor family out and dragged them through the dirt and it wasn't them at all. Uh, but yet when Dublin said there was a, a drone uh, and I saw, I immediately saw the, the evidence, I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And people do do stupid things. Yeah. But if we get to a point where all drones... so. If we develop a UTM system and, and it's employed here in Ireland, all drones will be on the UTM system. So hobbyists will be, say, flying in certain areas and any drone that's up there will have to dial onto the system. So it'll actually become a lot safer. Um, people aren't really spying with drones the way they think they are. Uh, I was once mapping the paving stones outside the bank in front of Trinity College and I was accused of... Uh, checking in on the bank and we were there legitimately the guards were called <laughs> um, it took us some convincing they had to phone air traffic control to assure themselves of who we were and like we have access to cameras that can zoom for like 8-10 kilometres so if I was checking at the bank I certainly wouldn't be doing it right but outside is, their door uh, this regulation we've been talking about is that kind of stuff covered in this as well? Yeah, it is. And it has been in the past. They've just gotten, they've just refined it. The drones In terms have, of what you can and can't do, like. Correct, yeah. And actually Dublin was, I believe, the first city and they only did it a couple of weeks ago where they asked drone operators to give their opinions. So they've changed the airspace categorizations in Dublin specifically for drones. I believe they're going to look at doing, say, Galway and Cork and, and whatnot. Um, and they're really trying to refine and make it better and more efficient. Before I let you go, I want you to just paint a picture for me of... What do you think the sky will look like uh, around Irish towns and cities in, in 15 years' time? I mean, do you think it'll be these things will be fairly obtrusive um, or, or what's it going to be like? Well, I don't think it's going to be quite the Jetsons or... You know, or oh, Apocalypse Now. I don't think it's going to be that either now. I mean, drones have gotten very quiet in the last couple of years. They've improved the blades, they've improved the motors, they've improved the electric power. When I say the size of a kitchen table, they will get smaller and still be able to carry the same capacity. Um, I think it's going to be very efficient, but also I would like to see, especially given COVID, if we are more clustered. So I live uh, out in Dunleary and I notice that people are walking a lot more, cycling a lot more. Uh, so if we can offset some of the cars with some passenger drones and some delivery drones, then maybe we can strike a real balance and reduce the amount of traffic considerably. Some fascinating insights there from Ian Kiley from Taking Stock with Gavin McLaughlin. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 10 to 11. Lots of people getting in touch with this suggestion from the government that all public workers would be rewarded for their work during the pandemic. So 500 quid for everyone in the public sector, not frontline healthcare workers. Myself and my partner are public sector workers and believe it would be wrong to reward all of us. Absolutely do reward the healthcare workers. They fully deserve it. The rest of us are lucky to have jobs where we could work from home, says one listener. Another, John and Cork, says even in healthcare, not all frontline healthcare workers received or experienced the same risk. My girlfriend is a paediatric nurse in the frontline, but as children were generally not significantly affected by this, she was not at a significantly higher risk than normal. I don't think 
she would believe that she deserves a bonus for being at risk. And one more. What about the rest of us who worked every day at the pandemic, says a listener. I work in manufacturing. We never stopped, as some of our work was for the public sector and never took a penny of PUP. I deserve something if the public sector is getting money. Tax cuts, maybe? A national holiday doesn't put food on the table. And don't try and say my work wasn't as valuable as the public sector. Kieran Cuddihy there from the hard shoulder. So what do you think of proposals to encourage older people to move out of their home? I don't think it's terribly fair. It's not fair on them. I mean, they're working all their lives to keep their houses and fine if it suits them. But I don't think you can generalise and say that it suits everybody. So you, you wouldn't like to be asked if, if the time came for you and someone said, hey, we're going to offer you a tax incentive? Uh, no, I don't think so. What about renting out rooms in a house? Well, I mean, if somebody wants to do it, if they're happy with it, fine. I'd have no problem with that. It would suit some people. It wouldn't suit me because I want a garden, I'd like a garden. But it would suit some people that they'd be quite happy to live in an apartment. Now, if I had the apartment out in Dunleary, I wouldn't mind. If they did that, our host, depends on where they'd be offering. And what about if someone's in a a big four or five bedroom home? What about encouraging to to rent out some of the rooms? They can do that. I mean, that's, again, encouragement. And if they encourage it as they're talking about by tax incentives and things like that, that would be a good way. It would be also company for the elderly person if they're living on their own or if there's only the two of them. But it would be company in the house and security in the house. So do you think it's fair to expect older people to move out of their family homes? No, I don't. No. Why should you? Yeah, that's your family home. You have to be in there all your life. Why should you move? Just they're, they're talking about offering incentives now so there'll be more housing on the market for young families. I'll let them build more. <laughs> I mean, I have my daughter living with me in my home at the moment, and my son and his wife, and my grandson, because they can't get anywhere. So if I was down, where would they go? So there's three generations in there's your three, home? D- yes, there's three generations in my home. And, and do your children want to move out and get their own place? Or? Oh, they do, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but there's no chance of them getting anywhere, because my home is a four-bedroom house, and there's enough room for them in it, so... My grandson is 16, but he's never had his own home. Why should people move out of their homes that they've been in for years and years and years? Families have grown up in it. The memories of their families is in it. And why should they move out? It's not only that, but you're, you're at the making a home over all them years. Say you're there 30 years, and they want you to move out and make another home, another starting off all over again. No, thanks. No. I think anybody who has more room than they need should be downsizing. We have too many people without a home. You don't see the need for someone to be living in a big mansion down the country by themselves? No. I mean, too many elderly grown-ups, I put myself in elderly, but they live in a house that's way too big for their needs. It's time to to get real. And what about for someone that feels, look, I've worked all my life, this is my family home, this is where I reared my children, I don't want to leave? I expect they should give someone else a chance to make it their family home, raise their children, you know? It's it's really a give-it-back. Do you think I'm old? Do you think it's fair to ask another person to move out of their home? No. No, I don't think it's fair at all. I mean, if this is their home, that's their home. You shouldn't have to go out just to downsize. No, definitely not. So you you don't see anything wrong with, I suppose, someone living in a big four or five bedroom house down the country, if that's what they want to do? Well, I live in, I live on my own and I'm in a four bedroom house, but I'm not moving out. No intentions of moving out. And what about offering a room to rent? Would you? Oh yeah, I'd have no problem. Yeah, I'd have no problem with that. But I'm, I'm still in my own home, and I'm not moving out. I have no problem letting the room out. No, definitely not. She, she might advertise now on one of these sites. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. It'd be my word of mouth. I'd be getting somebody in. Yeah, you, you don't know who you're going to let into your home.
I think I would be against it if it was a compulsory thing, but certainly if it was something that they would sort of give you some sort of an incentive, because there comes a stage in your life whenever you say, you know what, this house is too big, I need to, to move on. And yes, if you're living in a big three-bedroomed house, it's a, it's a family home, it's not, but I don't think that it's right to um, force people to, 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 you know, sell up their home, because, I mean, after all, if you've worked all your whole life and you've managed and you've bought it and you like it and you're still capable of looking after it well I think it's up to yourself your own choice so, so you've downsized or right sized yourself already yeah a couple of years ago I mean, in fact three years ago we went from a five bedroom house down to a two and a half bed house bungalow in fact looking back now it, it was the right call definitely you don't get as many people wanting to come and stay and for someone listening today and they're considering it they're on, they're on the fence what would you say to them well consider your options and also um, from the long term point of view with uh, the way utilities are going up it's certainly cheaper on the, the heating and the uh, electric and gas and all that type of stuff so yeah it's well worth it in the long run I think it would be a great idea because a lot of older people just live in kind of one room in a house so I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's necessary to have a big house and if you give an incentive to move out and if it's a warmer house every, everyone benefits I think so I, do, I think it's a great idea personally I actually know, I know I actually know a lot of young families now who are who are who are saving and they're renting and it's, it seems such a waste of money. If 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 you could get them on the ladder somewhere at all to help them, I think it you know it'd be fantastic. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Fluent Irish speakers in the Gaeltacht region around the Dingle Peninsula. This summer, like last year, it is mainly just fluent speakers, as droves of young people are prevented from coming to learn the language in summer schools due to COVID-19 restrictions. To find out the impact the loss of two summers is having on the area, I first met with Paddy O'Shea, who's the manager of the co-op in Ballyferreter, which runs the local Gaeltacht schools. I'd say you probably would notice it in every Gaeltacht, you know. There's no kids running around of that teenager's years. There's no kids having their first kiss, I suppose, to be honest with you. So all that is kind of, just brings a big hole into the community. So it's very difficult for parents and very difficult for the kids. Have the people involved in the school, running the schools, have they had to change tack or are the hollows being repurposed for their uses throughout the pandemic? The difficulty with, with all these facilities is that, you know, people can't go in there with all the rules, if you know what I mean. You probably hear a bit of music now going on in the background there. And that is the course that we've run and it's for adults. And it actually just has lifted the local area. And the knock-on effects from hundreds of, of young people coming into the community, how does that affect, I suppose, businesses and employment? Well, well I would say that, you know, we could have anything up to 2,500 to 3,000 students. It could bring in somewhere in the region of 2 million to this area. It's a lot of money. It goes from Lisbon back to Ballyferter over to Dunquin. That's just the income in for the courses itself. There's a multiplier of that at least two, if not three times, in economy locally here. Now, apart from the Cayleys, the trips to the beach, and, of course, the learning of the Irish language, one of the most important parts of a summer in the Gaeltacht are the Minotis, the hosts who open up their homes to cook and clean for children every year. What has such a change in lifestyle been like for them? My name is Kathleen de Morga, and I've been a Banty for more than 30 years. I started off in the very late 80s as I was single at the time, my mother before me had kept students, so I suppose historically it's something that you inherit, if you like, and it becomes a way of life. And I've kept students all the way through up until they stopped coming due to the pandemic. And just when you say a way of life, mm-hmm. what was it like for you? So 
for two summers now not having a busy house? Well, I think you're kind of going around like a headless chicken or going blind because you have no structure to your day. There was, there was a huge amount of structure to our lives when we had the Sclory. It's ironic that you go from not having enough time in the day to wondering how you're going to fill your day. We have taken on hobbies and we have time to reflect on how we spend our time, which there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So when the Sclory come back, hopefully Lekun of Day um, next year, that we'll be able to keep some of that quality and we'll be all the better for it as Monati. Banonti, Kathleen de Morga there, missing the dozens of young people who would usually be staying with her throughout the summer months. Like everything that has been taken away or put on hold, there are knock-on effects. For postmaster Seamus O'Lewing, who also runs a local shop in Ventry, he says the staycation trips just don't make up for the absence of the Gwilta courses. The students are a huge loss to the socio-economic fabric of, of West Kerry society in general. They make a huge contribution from the Monati to the shops to the spend generally throughout the peninsula. As well as having the students here, the parents usually come to visit at weekends or maybe during the week or whatever. So that's uh, one of the added spin-offs of having students. And there's all the people who are actually participating participating in the whole student programme and local employment from having students. So it's a huge loss. Could you describe what this post office would be like now in previous years, when, you, when you'd have groups of teenagers now? Groups of teenagers coming in and the ice cream fridge could be cleaned out, which it isn't at the moment, you know what I mean? So And, and the soft drinks and stuff like that, so that's what it's all about. And also what actually often happens as well with students is that you find later on in life they actually come back to visit again because they've actually been here already and sampled it so they know what the area is like and, and most of them like it. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Saturday, Down to Business took in some green vibes at the Solis Eco Garden Centre in County Leash. Here's Bobby Kerr. Now, tell us about your end of it. I, I see we haven't been there yet, but hopefully we'll go there in a minute. But uh, maybe just give us a, a high-level picture of, of, of your end of the operation. Sure, Bobby. Yeah, I hope to take you on a tour of our greenhouse that we have uh, just behind you there. We actually have a, f- a, f- a 5,000 square foot greenhouse which has the perfect conditions for growing all of our plants and maintaining them in the perfect conditions. So what we aim to have out there is uh, a range of every plant you're going to need throughout the year, every, all your favourites. Not only that, but they're majority sourced locally here in Ireland. There's a wide range of really good nurseries in Ireland, and we are tapping into all of them to, to showcase the range of plants that they're, they're growing. OK, I think we better go and have a look at that because that sounds fantastic. And there's also, is there not, uh, an online operation? That's right, yeah. We've been going for 10 years online already and that's proven to be very, very successful. We're uh, Ireland's largest online garden centre with over 70,000 registered customers. And in our peak period, we ship out about 700 parcels nationwide daily. So, yeah, we, we, we definitely got it right on the online side of things. But we said, you know, I think it was time that we would open a retail centre to, you know, you could say the online aspect is maybe a little bit invisible. But now with our new uh, five-acre garden centre, we have something in the community that is maybe bringing something out for the town, for the people of the area to come visit and, you know, offer something back to the town. Right, uh, John. We better go and look at this uh, the, this great glass house. I'm I'm really really excited to see it. So why don't we go up there and we'll have a look at it? Thank you. 
Now, John, uh, we're in the greenhouse per se. It's 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 really really impressive, and it's. I just want to describe to our listeners. Uh, there's a, a range of plants, herbs, flowers, and again, in this kind of, it's almost like a, an open-sided hay barn with an attract, a retractable roof. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about what's going on here, uh, if you would, John. Sure thing, Bobby. So we're standing inside our Rivero greenhouse, which, as you say yourself, has what we call a roll-air roof. And that, that roof allows us, at the touch of a button, to retract the entire roof above our heads here. And that allows us to really... Uh, create the ideal growing conditions for everything that we have here in the greenhouse all right okay well we'll go and have a look at another place here now because i think this is absolutely eye-opening uh, to see these uh, beautiful plants and vegetables and herbs uh, all here down in port arlington uh, under under glass and even indeed under the open sky so stand by and we'll have uh, another broadcast uh, from the next area that we're going to see now, okay, folks, I've uh, discovered something else here down in Port Arlington. I've, in good health and safety, I've scaled a ladder I've up on top of a 40-foot container. I don't know if you can hear that behind me. Yes, I've discovered a whole load of chicken coops up here. So, uh, uh, David, you'll have to tell me about what's happening here. So we just had a plan here that we'd like to reduce um, the amount of food waste from our garden centre. So we came up with the idea of uh, converting one of our 40-foot containers into a zone for uh, free-range chickens. So we have uh, my my son and his business partner, Boat 14, have a a business venture at our farmer's market on Saturdays where they sell chicken coops and uh, chickens. And what the the chickens live here in the lap of luxury. Uh, The 15 of them live in an area that's designated by the Department of Agriculture, uh, we can have up to 600 chickens. So their facilities include... Say that again, 600 chickens in 500 square feet and they can still be deemed free-range. Yes, it's it's relatively incredible. Uh, The definition of free-range in Ireland is no more than 13 chickens per square metre. So um, what we have here is we have a a great... um, um, Two-thirds of the facility is indoors, one-third is outdoors. It's all on the second storey. So as you're passing through our garden centre, you actually walk underneath the chickens they have swings walking tracks a swimming pool a solar powered fountain and uh, an array of uh, healthy herbs they can chew on well i've seen it all now folks i can tell you that this is this is fantastic and the other thing about this david is something like chickens and the activity that they bring uh, children again will be interested in this this is entertainment for families it dovetails neatly into what you're doing around sustainability so I can see how it integrates. Yeah, I mean, this is really, like, I mean, it takes all the boxes for us. Both, it's fun, it's playful, um, it, 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 it makes sense in terms of doing it. Um, each of the chickens pay rent. We're averaging about uh, half an egg per day per chicken. Uh, and um, so we have, uh, we have a good work ethic generally within our workforce here, so the chickens are no different. Um, as well as that, we have a lot of courses, of course, that we run for, uh, and we have an education zone here, which we use for running, vegetable growing courses and we try to market those as much as possible towards uh, younger people to teach them importance of growing their own and to live an environmental life. Some superb entrepreneurialism there from Solus Eco Garden Centre from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Now this week Alive and Kicking looked at the importance of a good night's sleep. Here's sleep expert Dr Neil Stanley. What about the room itself? What's important about it and, and where you sleep? Uh, the bed needs to be dark, quiet, cool, and comfortable. So dark 
even very low levels of light, even the light that you'd get from a couple of candles could potentially disturb your sleep. So blackout blinds, heavy curtains, and put gaffer tape over, um, you know, the, your extension uh, lead that you've plugged your phone charger into. Um, quiet, uh, as, as quiet as possible, and that involve, includes moving your snoring partner out of the bedroom because they'll disturb you. Cool, you need to lose body temperature overnight in order to get a good night's sleep. So the bedroom needs to be cool. Um, it can be warm in bed in the winter, but you heat the bed up anyway just by being in it. And comfortable. Uh, if you live to the age of 70, you'll spend 220,000 hours of your life asleep. So your bed really should be quite a uh, significant uh, purchase and should be very very comfortable you'll spend more time in your bed than you'll spend anywhere else in your entire life now you have said a couple of things that have blown my mind a little bit the peppermint toothpaste is one what flavor should your toothpaste be to help you relax well this is well this is the gap in the market if anybody's listening who wants to to make a million then i i don't don't know what um, orange blossom or lavender i mean they're the two smells that help you fall asleep i I would very much uh, advise somebody to uh, make an orange blossom smelling toothpaste (laughs) and also you mentioned a snoring partner so if you have somebody beside you that is disturbing your sleep, are you suggesting separate beds are the, are the way to go? And we should talk about separate this bedrooms. more. Separate bedrooms, absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, it, through history, it's only the poor who've ever slept together because uh, we don't have space to sleep separately. Um, and essentially, humans are the only animals that sleep together for intimacy. Other animals may sleep together for warmth or for security, but we choose to do it. And as I said, it should be quiet in your bedroom. The World Health Organization says no louder than 40 decibels. A snore is 65 to 95 decibels. So um, we're not meant to sleep together. Um, and, um, you know, if as you get older and the kids fly the nest and there's some uh, spare uh, space, uh, you know, have your own bedroom. It's not the back room. It's not the guest room. It's your bedroom. And you can have cuddles. Uh, and then when you've had cuddles, you can go and have a good undisturbed night's sleep and then come back in the morning happy to see your partner rather than wanting to put the pillow over them and smother them. <laughs> you know, that's really interesting because we would often see it as a, a failing in a relationship if you end up sleeping in, in separate beds, you're missing out on something. But when I was looking at at some of the research that you've put out there. If you've had bad sleep, among other things, you're more likely to get into a verbal disagreement with your partner or your family. So you're actually saving the relationship in the long run. Absolutely. People who have poor sleep have a higher rate of divorce. Um, You know, in the short term, if you have a bad night's sleep, the next day, as you say, you'll have more arguments, you'll uh, have less empathy for your partner, and you'll have less desire to make up with your partner. So, you know, you're going to have an argument and you're going to keep that argument going. Um, and, and, you know, we've been sold a cot. We've been conned into the idea of sleeping together uh, as being the natural thing. This is only a very, very recent phenomenon. Um, it's, it's history can be traced back to Victorian times at the, at the very uh, you know, earliest. And, and, you know, there were big arguments in the women's magazines of the time, right up into the 1950s. 
uh, as to whether you should be you know sleeping separately from your partner so it's a very modern phenomenon as i say the and it's only it's a signifier of poverty the rich have never slept together you go around any stately home or castle you'll see the king's bedroom the queen's bedroom the lord's bedroom the lady's bedroom um you only shared a bed for a particular reason that uh, didn't involve sleep. Some terrific tips there from sleep expert Dr. Neil Stanley from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Own Sheen and Off the Bulls crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. Our winner tonight will be decided in the round that separates the men from the boys, the John Kylies from the John Travoltas. It's a no theme in particular, ridiculously easy rapid fire round. The score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round and there will be 40 seconds for everyone to answer from the same set of questions. We're going to start with Tommy, then on to Jer, and then on to Adrian. Uh, if you get a question Tommy correct. Tommy had two of those questions wrong. Tommy had two of those numbers wrong. At least. Get full yeah. points. I mean, at least you're not banging on about he it. Didn't even, he, he didn't even say about Mayo. How many did you have for Mayo? Four. Did you have, did you have you two extra, right, Tommy? He just, he just gave them an extra All-Ireland. Uh, well, yeah. he's here yeah. and he's he's in the box seat and uh, we're going to... But just Okay, okay. I assume we're not going to change the rule today, but isn't it a good idea that the Standing Rules Commission and the CCCCCCCCC should have a look at that that you can't get your full score if you fluke into it. No, that there needs to be some opportunity for people who know nothing about sport to win this quiz. Uh, I mean, otherwise, I mean, the, like other, otherwise, the man, the man in the box seat, as you say. Otherwise, it's just uh, a little bit too boring. Uh, Tommy, are you ready? I am. Your forty seconds starts now. Who was Lionel Messi's first senior manager at Barcelona? Uh, Rijkaard. Correct. In what year did Kelly Harrington win her World Championship gold medal? 2016. No, 2018. Podrick Almond has signed for what club, Jer? Derry City. No, Exeter City. What was Annalise Murphy's sailing class in Tokyo? Radio. Correct. What is what club is Mayo's Matthew Oran part of? Balladrine. No, Brafie. Swimmer Ariane Titmus represents what country, Tommy? Lithuania. No, Australia. Angela Grass of Canada won which individual athletics medal in Tokyo, Jer? 100 metre no, hurdles 200 metres Name the only non-European oh. manager in the Premier League Adrian <laughs> oh, Come on that's easy uh, Too long <laughs> It is Bielsa but that only brings you to three points Tommy you finish up on Oof. four points but a skinny Tommy I had you in my sides I had you in the crosshairs What have you got to say for yourself If I'd have got the point I should have got for finishing second by the way in that knockout round that would have been a draw We should go to a tie break just play it out I'll let Adrian and Jerry do all the talking this week yeah. Thank you very much Glad I won it. I was ready. I'm for glad you made me wait an extra twenty minutes for this. It was it was scintillating stuff. <laughs> Sorry, Jer. Last Jer, last position, one point, no points. No, no well, points. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, when I heard it was Jer and Adrian this morning, there was no Nathan. I was confident that I would come through, and I'm happily. Yeah. I'm happy that I did. All right. Congratulations, Tommy. Really inspiring speech there as you won uh, another crappy quiz. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk.